This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. Hear the Word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind on the thing, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we take up this study of your word now, that you would open our eyes. Your spirit would be our teacher. Father, give us humble hearts. Give us awareness of ourselves, of our own hearts, of our own lives, that as we measure ourselves by your word, and above all, Lord, as we read of your grace to us in your word, that you would transform us, you would change us, feed our souls on the scriptures now, we ask it in Christ's name, amen. I like roller coasters. Uh, I've been on pretty much every roller coaster at Six Flags except for one, the uh, the Deja Vu. That's the one that has the two tracks that go up in the air. I think you go up and then you fall backwards and it goes up the other one. Sometimes it's just I didn't go on it. Most of the time I've been there, it hasn't been running, which probably should tell you something right there. So I've been on every one except that. The first world, the first big roller coaster I ever went on, I went on a small one at Kemper Park in, in Hattiesburg. Uh, but the first big roller coaster I ever went on was the Zephyr, Pontchartrain Beach Amusement Park. You been there, Mike? 
Punch Train Beach. It's no longer there. It closed, I think, in 1983. That I can remember growing up uh, about two miles, uh, two miles, two uh, hours from New Orleans and uh, making the trip down a couple times. And uh, remember, my best friend went with me, and we were in the front seat, and we rode the Zephyr. Uh, it's uh, if you've been on the Scream Machine at Six Flags, it's similar. It's an out and back kind of roller coaster, wooden, up and down the hills. Uh, you go up the hill, and at the bottom of the first several hills are tunnels. Now, it was at night anyway, but you go through the tunnel, it gets really dark, and then you come, you know, heading up the other side. Uh, the first hill, the one where the chain pulls you up, it had this tower at the top uh, that went up and had a light on the top, and it had a, it had a sign just as you're about to go over the first hill that said something like, remain seated, do not stand up. Now, of course, you know, a lot of people would try to they would stand up and try to touch the sign as they went over. As Paul said, the commandment came and sin sprang to life. Um, but it was a great roller coaster, first roller coaster I ever went on. Well, as we come to the passage this morning, if you've been paying attention, you may start to get the feeling that you're on a roller coaster ride, one of those up and down kind where, uh, you know, you have the butterflies heading downhill and then the G-forces as you start heading back the, the other side. Look at where we've been, going back into chapter 15 with Jesus' miracles, with the healings, with the, the feeding of the 4,000, certainly a high point. And then Jesus comes back into Galilee. And he's immediately confronted with uh, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees who were there demanding that he show them some sign uh, met with hostility, so he uh, and Jesus teaches about that uh, in the in the passage there, uh, following that where he's talking to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Kind of a low point, and they're slow to understand, and he he's, he's they're trying his patience a bit. But then you have the passage we saw last time where Peter makes this magnificent confession and and speaking on behalf of the disciples because Jesus asked, "What are you disciples?" Think of who I am, and Peter speaks certainly for himself, but I think he represents the consensus opinion among Jesus' disciples, and certainly that's a high point um, in Jesus' ministry, in Peter's life. Uh, as, as, as the Lord Jesus says, You are Peter, you are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, the high point in the Gospel of Matthew, as we've been studying through it. But just as it's starting to look like everything's going up, we round that top, we're headed back down again. Uh, we take a real plunge here, uh, not only because of Peter's response, but uh, at least in terms of human nature, the kinds of things that Jesus is teaching the disciples, the kinds of things that Jesus teaches us here. And so as we come to the passage, um, basically the lesson that we learn is like Savior, like disciple. And uh, as we look at the passage, uh, we see in the first place, these first few verses, the truth that we follow and we are called to follow a self-denying Savior, a self-denying Messiah. Let's look at what happens, verses 21 through 23. We read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So as soon as Jesus has this affirmation, uh, this, this confirmation of his disciples' view of him as the Messiah, uh, with that set in place, Jesus now has to begin to shape their understanding of what his Messiahship would look like. 
because as much as they understand, there's still a lot they don't understand. There's still some misunderstandings they share with the, the crowds in, uh, in, in Jerusalem and, and throughout Judea. And so Jesus begins to show his disciples, which, in, which indicates this wasn't just a one-time thing. He was, there was a process. He was beginning to teach them what the future held for him, what his Messiahship would look like. And what it looks like, he says in verse 21, is teaching about his own suffering and death. He must go to Jerusalem. That's a curious way to put it. Because Jesus didn't say, let me tell you the future. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem at some point, and this is what's going to happen. He teaches them he must go to Jerusalem. It is necessary for this to occur. Why is that? Well, we read the answer in Isaiah 53. Because it was the will of the Lord that this happened. Why must Jesus go to Jerusalem? Because that was his father's purpose for him. Because it was the will of God for him. Jesus was following the will of his father for his life. And because that will evolved, involved eventually going to Jerusalem and essentially yielding himself up to them, giving himself up to the authorities there, uh, is something that had to take place. He must go and there in Jerusalem suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Now, collectively, those, that group is known as the Sanhedrin. They are the ruling body over Israel. Uh, the elders, uh, leaders, the chief priests, of course the priesthood, the scribes, the experts on the law, we've already encountered them in Matthew's gospel, uh, suffer many things from them and be killed. Now notice Jesus is somewhat vague. Suffer many things. What kind of things? Well, he doesn't go into that. But he does uh, tell them that those things will eventually involve his own death, although it's important to recognize that apparently Jesus has not told them the nature of his death. And we need to remember that as we go into the second half of our text, because it's, too, it's easy to read into, into it something that is, is not there, that from the standpoint of the disciples anyway, they don't yet know. But Jesus doesn't specify how he's going to die. He just says he has to go to Jerusalem. There he's going to suffer a lot of things, and eventually those things will uh, end in his in his death. However, he continues, and on the third day, be raised. Now, it does not require a great deal of prophetic insight on Jesus' part to figure out that if he continues to make the authorities unhappy, and if he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, he could well suffer and could well be killed. Wouldn't be the first time, it certainly wasn't the last time, that a perceived enemy of the state vanished in the night, or even in broad daylight. However, it was truly remarkable that Jesus would say, and on the third day he'll be raised up again to life. That's pretty remarkable. Most people could see, if they were in his situation, yes, that death may be a possibility, but most people wouldn't say, but that's okay, on the third day I'm coming back. But Jesus did. However, as he's talking to his disciples and they're starting to try to process these things Jesus is saying, they didn't get nearly that far. They never even heard anything Jesus said about being raised, apparently, because their brains were stuck way back at that first part. Suffer? Be killed? You know, <laughs> wait a minute, Jesus. We, we all just agreed you're the Messiah. 
How does that happen? Wait a minute. That's not what the Messiah does. Messiah is going to suffer at the hands of the leaders in Jerusalem and and be killed. Their their idea was that the, the Messiah would go in, take charge in Jerusalem, and lead the whole thing in throwing out the Romans. Let's just talk about being suffering, about suffering and being killed. And so Peter, once again, is probably, while he acts alone, as he's mentioned here, is probably acting on behalf of, of the group of disciples. Now, notice the language, verse 22. Peter took him aside. You know, you can kind of see him come up to Jesus. Come, come over here. We need to talk. He doesn't want to embarrass him. You know, this just needs to be a private conversation. It's like you parents might take one of your children aside, you know, so they're not... Uh, humiliated in front of their brothers and sisters, you know, take them aside. Well, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Pretty strong language. And a little bit strange when you consider that Peter has just said, yes, Lord, you are the king, you are the Messiah. But now he's taking the Messiah and trying to set him straight on how it's all going to play out. But he begins to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Literally, it reads something like, mercy on you, Lord. Uh, Probably a good English rendering uh, would be something like, heaven forbid. And God have mercy on you, is is the sense. What are you talking about? Heaven forbid that should happen. This shall never happen to you. Now, what's Peter thinking? Well, one has to do probably with, with his understanding of what the Messiah would, would this is going to happen to the Messiah. That's, that's just all wrong. But I also think there was some personal loyalty there. Lord, we're not going to let this kind of thing happen to you. We know who you are. We're, we're going to defend you. We'll protect you. But uh, that mixed up with a misunderstanding about the nature of who Jesus, uh, not so much who he was, but what he, how that would play out, how it would work for him as the Messiah. This shall never happen to you. Now, we don't know how far Peter got. It said he began to rebuke Jesus. And look what happens, verse 23. But Jesus turned. You know, maybe he was just, they were kind of just listening to him. But when Jesus starts hearing this, he turns and he looks straight at Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Wow. We just went from the rock to the devil. We just went from the foundation to the adversary. How did that happen? Why would Jesus say this? In fact, the language, get behind me, uh, is, is similar to language Jesus used earlier when he told his disciples to follow him. It's, it's, some could take it and say, well, see, you know, Peter's gotten out in front, and Jesus is saying, well, Peter, you need to get back behind. You need to stop trying to lead and start following. And there's something to that, given the language, except Jesus is addressing Peter and calls him Satan. And I don't think Jesus is calling Satan to discipleship. You know, it's kind of like what the old comedian said, you know, what will the preachers do when the devil is saved? Well, I don't think uh, I don't think we're we're in any danger of that. I don't think that's God's program for Satan whatsoever. He's not calling Satan to discipleship. So what's he saying? When it says "get behind me," the the sense is is that of of get away from me. In fact, it is the same verb that's used back in Matthew four, where uh, as the ESV renders it a, a little bit archaically, "Be gone, Satan." We'd say, "Get out of here." Get out of my face. Go away. Scram. Satan. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he say that to Peter? 
You are a hindrance. You are a stumbling block. You are a scandal. You're an offense to me. Why would he say that? Well, he explains it, but what does it mean? You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, Jesus responds as vehemently as he does, even naming Peter as Satan, because what Peter was unwittingly doing, and we have to say that, Peter was not trying to cause offense. He was not trying to be a problem. This was you know, a good-hearted effort on Peter's part. But in unwittingly, he was standing in for Satan. Remember when Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, when the devil comes to Satan and he says, Look at all the kingdoms of the world. It can all be yours. If you'll just, if you'll just bow down. Just, just for a couple seconds, just kneel in front of me. It'll all be yours. And Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. What's the temptation? What was the temptation of Matthew 4? Many of you were here. You may remember. The temptation was to gain it all without paying for it all. To have it all without having to go through the death of the cross. In other words, to gain the crown without the cross. To take a shortcut. And so when Jesus is beginning to teach his disciples about his own anticipated suffering and death, and yes, resurrection, and Peter comes in and says, No, Lord. He's, in a, in a sense, playing into uh, the role of Satan and tempting Jesus that maybe there is some other way. Maybe there's some way to avoid it. And he's calling Jesus away from that pattern, away from that purpose of God for the redemption of God's people through the death of the Messiah. And that's why, that's why Jesus can say to Peter, you're a hindrance to me. You know, I mean, in his human nature, Jesus would very much like to avoid the cross. And we see, you know, you know how in... Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, how much in anguish he was in anticipation of that event. And so he says to Peter, you, you are a hindrance, you are a stumbling block. And the reason is because you're not looking at this from God's point of view. You know, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Yes, Jesus could return to the glory of heaven without going by the, through the cross, but you and I would have no salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The wages of sin is death. And if sin is, if our sin is going to be forgiven, someone else has to pay the price of that sin, which is death. Then the grace and the good news of the gospel is that God allowed a substitute to be the blood, to shed his blood so that we wouldn't have to, so we can be forgiven. That's what all the animals were for in the Old Testament. To teach them that God is holy, he can't just ignore sin, he has to justly deal with our sin. But when that happens, then he is able, while maintaining his justice, to pardon us. But the blood of the animals couldn't atone for people. That's why Jesus came. And so that's why he says to Peter, you're, setting, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're not looking at this from God's point of view, but from the human point of view, which wants comfort without a price. Which wants ease without the work. That's the human point of view. Let's maximize our comfort. Let's minimize our pain. But Jesus' program, the will of his Father was to go through inconceivable pain that he would then have inconceivable glory. And so when Jesus speaks to Peter in this way, he's simply saying, Peter, you are an obstacle 
to the purposes of God when you talk like that. Yes, Peter, this is how it's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'll suffer many things, and I'll die, and I'll be raised on the third day. Well, they never got past the suffering part. However, Jesus, recognizing that Peter's mind and the other disciples is, is set not on the things of God, but on the things of man, takes this opportunity to instruct them what the implications of his own suffering death are for them and for their lives. And we see that in verses 24 through 28. We follow a self-denying, self-giving Savior. Therefore, we who follow him must lead self-denying lives. A disciple is not greater than his master, Jesus taught. A sir, uh, than his teacher, a servant is not above his master. Why should, uh, why should our Savior suffer and die and then win glory and we just sail on in? Well, we want to be Christ-like, right? Well, that includes holiness, purity, humility, kindness, patience, all those things that typified Christ's own character. But they also, being Christ-like also means that the pattern of our lives is going to be like the pattern of his life. First the cross, then the crown. And Jesus spells this out in these, in these verses. He gives three requirements for those who follow him. Notice verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, now that's, of course, includes these disciples he's talking to, but that's, that's broad. That means anyone in his own day, anyone after his time, say in the book of Acts, anyone in church history since up to the present day, any one of you, it's pretty universal. If anyone, Without exception, if anyone would come after me, three things. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Deny himself. Boy, if there's anything that's profanity in our day, it's those words. Because we live in a day that insists on instant gratification, maximum pleasure, minimum pain, maximum enjoyment, minimum inconvenience. Right? We live in the day of drive-throughs, the internet, microwaves. I mean, you know, email's not even fast enough now. You text message, right? It's got to be instant, got to be now. We want it all, and we want it all right now. If you can't afford it, go into debt, whatever. When Jesus turns around and says, whoever would come after me has to deny himself, has to uh, be willing not to indulge himself, but to deprive himself in certain ways. And we'll talk about these as a whole, but let's look at the next one. And take up his cross. Well, now remember, Jesus didn't say to the disciples he would be crucified. We know that. I mean, so when we read, take up his cross, that has a particular meaning for us because we know that Jesus literally did that himself. But at this point, as far as we know, the disciples didn't understand that. He just said he was going to be killed. Didn't say how. Uh, in fact, probably the disciples thought of if you're going to be killed, it may be through stoning because that's typically, you know, was the Jewish form of execution. Although at this point, they could only do that under, with the approval of the uh, Romans. But take up his cross. Even though they didn't necessarily associate that with how Jesus would die, they knew full well what it meant. They probably witnessed on more than one occasion, maybe many occasions, when the condemned man carried his cross or part of his cross through the streets, out the gate, outside Jerusalem, uh, where he would be executed. Taking up and carrying his own instrument of execution as he went outside the city to die. They knew full well 
what the image was, even if they didn't apply it directly to Jesus. Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. This isn't about seeking your own comfort, your own glory, uh, at least not immediately. And that's kind of probably what they were thinking. You know, when Jesus would come into his kingdom, they all would reign with him. Take up his cross and follow me. Now, there is a hint there. If you're carrying part of the cross and you're following Jesus, that means he's out in front of you <laughs> heading out to Golgotha, which we know is exactly what happened. Uh, but there are these, these three conditions placed. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Problem is, we want to come after Jesus. We just don't want to deny ourselves, carry any part of the cross, and follow him in that way. But the reality is this. We serve a suffering Savior. And the Christian life itself will be like that in that it will be, at times, a suffering, self-denying life. And that's that's hard. Uh, We we resist that. We want our comfort. We shrink back from suffering. Jesus did too. In his humanity, in his human nature, Jesus shrank back from the cross. He shrank back from the self-denial that would entail. And yet his whole life was one of self-denial. From the very moment he was incarnate into a, into a human nature, a human body, I mean, think what he gave up in that. And what he gave up to live among us here, to give of himself, to serve, to wash his disciples' feet, to put up with them. It was a very much a self-denying life the whole way through, culminating, of course, in the cross. And that's what Jesus calls us to. Now, that's going to take different forms at different times. It means that we are, uh, in the course of our life, to be willing to give of ourselves for the well-being of others. It may be giving time, energy, patience, money, effort, whatever it takes to seek the well-being of others around us. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Ultimately, humbling ourselves. Even the self-denial of not striking back when someone has done some wrong to you, to deny yourself the pleasure of making a cutting remark in return, but rather overcoming evil with good. There's self-denial in that. It feels good to lash back out at them, doesn't it? And it's sort of like dying a death when you just let it go. That's part of this. It takes a lot of different forms. But then Jesus gives some reasons, not only just the pattern of his life, but some other reasons, each one of them, 20, 25, 26, 27, begins with the word for, which in any case, he's giving reasons, right? This is, this is why. First reason is paradox. Paradox. Look at 25. For, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying the person who lives for himself, the person who, 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 who seeks his own self-indulgence, Strangely enough, doesn't find life. You know, that's the paradox. The more we act, the more we deliberately and directly pursue happiness, the less likely we are to find it. I'll give you an example. You want a happy marriage? Don't seek happiness for yourself. Seek the happiness of your spouse. And pray in God's grace that your spouse has the same attitude and your spouse seeks not his or her own happiness, but your happiness. Because if you have two partners in marriage, each seeking his own happiness or her own happiness, what you have is two ticks and no dog. And you will consume each other. But if each is seeking the happiness of the other, then your marriage will be 
blessed. Your marriage will be happy. Where you're each giving of yourself for the happiness, the well-being, the comfort of the other, you're going to have a happy marriage. But if each of you is in it for your own happiness directly, it's going to be miserable. And that's where so many people go wrong. That's just one example of what Jesus is saying here. The paradox you know, at night, uh, if, if you want to see things in the dark, the way our eyes are made, if you look straight at it, you don't see it as clearly in the dark at night when the light's very low. But if you look kind of to the side, you see it. You can see it better. Well, again, happiness comes indirectly as we pursue Christ, as we pursue uh, the likeness to him, than if we pursue it directly. So first, this paradox. Second, Jesus uses the talk of profit here, profit motive. Verse 26 for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? What shall a man give in return for his life? Now, the ESV, I'm reading from the first edition, translates that life. The second edition, maybe you have that, came out, it's last year, uh, goes back to the word soul. In every case here, the word is life, it's soul, suke, a word psychology comes from it, soul. Um, it can refer to our human life, it can refer to our soul as, you know, our spirit. Uh, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Jesus uses the talk of profit here. You know, suppose you're out to indulge yourself. Suppose you should, you know, through great decisions and success, achieve all the wealth of the world. And yet lose your life. Or lose your soul. What do you gain? The riches of the world are temporary. Your soul and who you are is eternal. Suppose you gain everything the world has to offer, but have lost your soul. We, in Christian terms, would say, have no salvation, didn't follow Jesus. In the process, you've gained nothing. You have nothing. You're going to lose it all. So profit motive. It makes much more sense to pursue Christ and eternal life in him than it does to go out and leave him and pursue your own pleasures, your own self-indulgence, whatever. What will a man give in return for his life? A third reason. Paradox is one, that by pursuing pleasure directly, we lose it. But if we give our lives in service to Christ and service to others, uh, then we gain it. Profit, uh, by pursuing Christ, you gain something far more valuable than the world can offer. But third, paradox. Look at verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You see, there may be self-denial, but it is a temporary self-denial. Because Christ says the day is coming when I will return. And that's when the glory comes in. That's when the reward is there. And for those who have, 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 have denied themselves, taken the cross, followed me, there will be glory. For those who haven't, there won't be. There will be judgment. So Jesus is basically saying, take a long-range view. Keep your eye fixed on the prize of being with Christ in glory. Just as he suffered the cross and then entered into the glory. That's the pattern that he has for us as well. Self-denial as we live for him here, taking up our cross, following him, dying to ourselves, dying to our sin, living for him, and that taking expression through living and serving one another, there will be glory. It's only a temporary thing, the self-denial. But you see, those who pursue themselves and their comforts and their desires here don't follow Christ. They may have it easy for a while, but their day of self-denial is coming too. And it's going to last a whole lot longer than yours and mine who followed Christ. 
Well, Jesus ends in verse 28 with a verse that we could talk on for a long time. Certainly much has been written about. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You know, it's easy to think, well, that, you know, yeah, we deny ourselves, and yes, we know the glory is coming. But that seems so unreal, doesn't it? Even though it is real. It seems so strange. It's like you children who are very young thinking that you might one day be driving a car. Trust me, it will get here much quicker than you think. But for you who are children, that's just not even a a real idea, is it? To think that you might be driving a car. That's just so far out there, so far away, so out of your experience. But for all of us, that's a little bit how we think of... uh, how we think of the the return of Christ. But Jesus says, okay, that is in the distance. However, some of you are standing here now who are going to taste the kingdom, who are going to see that coming. What's Jesus referring to? Well, some say his resurrection, some say Pentecost, some say the fall of Jerusalem, some say the transfiguration, which occurs in the next chapter. It seems a little weird worded if that's going to come up in less than a week. Some of you are still going to be alive in less than a week. Well, that's good to know. Um, What's he talking about? Well, I think it's, it's kind of a, all, of the, all of the above. Uh, the disciples who would be there would live to see the kingdom expand. Would live to see what we read about in the book of Acts, for instance. The spirit coming, the gospel being preached, thousands coming in. The kingdom expanding here. Uh, Jesus wasn't saying, some of you are going to be alive at my second coming, talking to these, these disciples here. There will be Christians alive at his second coming, but it obviously wasn't these, these, uh, these twelve But I think he's talking just there about what we read about in the book of Acts. They would live to see uh, that kingdom coming. And that as a down payment, that as as a guarantee of the future glory that is to come. That you and I are here now. That you have experienced the saving grace of God in your own life. Gives us reason to believe that the day is coming when we will experience that in its fullness. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Just a way of assuring them that yes, the self denial. The cross lasts only for a relatively short time. We follow a self-denying Savior, and therefore we are called to live a Christ-like, which means self-denying life. Does that mean we can't enjoy life? Of course not. We do enjoy a great many things that the Father has blessed us with and given us with. But it does mean that the basic direction of our life is not to serve ourselves. It's not me, 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 but it's to serve others, because by doing that we serve Christ. It's as Paul wrote in, uh, second, in, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, you know, not only to look out to your own interests, but look out for the interests of others and points to Christ as the great example of that. The next chapter, Philippians 3, Paul says, you know, he gives up all of this that was to his credit, that I may know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, Paul understood that to identify with a suffering Savior meant suffering himself. And that's true for you and for me as well. And so we need to come to terms with who Jesus is, the pattern of his life, first the cross, then the crown, and answer the question of ourselves, have we too committed ourselves to follow Jesus and all that that means, both in terms of the cross, but thankfully also in terms of the crown. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus did suffer and give himself for our sakes, ultimately going to the cross. Uh, Father, we thank you he did not yield to the temptation of Satan or Satan through Peter or any other way to turn away from that mission for which he was sent. Because, Father, if he had, we would be lost. 
without any salvation at all. But he didn't. He stuck with it and uh, went to the cross. And we thank you that we are in him now and are bound for glory in him. Father, I pray uh, that you would give us grace to live a Christ-like life, to be willing to accept the pattern of discipleship of a suffering Savior. Father, we thank you uh, that that's not the last word, however, and give us faith to see the crown, to see the glory that lies beyond for all who follow Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.